0: Many people have problems with art and not with reality.
1: So why is art different?
0: It's pretty simple, right? This is knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your right? head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair.
1: Bring it. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ando. So hello everybody. It's nice to be back. Thank you for welcoming me into your head once again. We have a really great show for you today. And uh, yes, sorry, we were not here last week. We're actually working on a series of podcasts for the uh, Copenhagen Photo Festival. I'll tell you more about that when it's all done. I've been trying to get today's guest on the show for a long time. But as these things tend to go, it seems actually to be the perfect time to have him on. It's a little bit of a long one, but that's only because it's that good. I couldn't bear to cut any of it out. Uh, yes, sir, we have Andreas Dalsgaard on today. It's our first film director on the show. He is the illuminated Danish film director of many works, most recently a film I saw, which I really liked, called Life is Sacred. He's worked all over the world, as you'll hear. And in my mind, he has a rare ability for uh, for working with people and trying to understand uh people's thoughts it's it's pretty special so i'm gonna leave this short because i'm exhausted but i just wanted to say thanks to those who came to my show here in copenhagen the big news is that i've quit my day job gonna spend more time on this show after the summer vacation it's on and there's also some cool stuff in the works so uh i'll tell you more about that next time but there's good stuff on the horizon so that's it. We'll get straight to it. Enjoy my conversation with Andreas. He's really an amazing dude, and uh, so are the films of his, which I've uh, had the pleasure of seeing. Stick around to the end. He uh, he talks about his upcoming project, and it really truly sounds amazing. So please enjoy my talk with Andreas you. this is by far the earliest uh, I've ever recorded one of these podcasts. What is it? 830 in the morning. I know that uh, everybody who has kids is like, Oh, fuck you. (laughs) I don't have kids though. (laughs) But, uh, but it it does uh, make me think that you uh, get up early and work hard. Yeah, but I like to, uh, I didn't used
0: to like to get up early but since my kids get up early and I have to bring my kids to school then um, I'm working from 8 o'clock in the morning and people who make film which is the kind of people that I usually work with they are um, somewhat dumbfounded (laughs) when I suggest that that we could start work at 8 o'clock in the morning and then you, you get on the bike and you go through the city and you realize that That's when most people go
1: to work. Sure, but we pride ourselves on not being most people, right? I was a little dumbfounded. But what does that mean to pride ourselves (laughs) about not being like most people? That's uh, That means you don't have an office job. Well,
0: I don't know. I mean, I used to think that it was an amazing thing to work until 2 o'clock at night and the magic hour from 10 in the evening till 2 o'clock. And... um, I guess it just comes with kids, but my magic hour has become from eight till 12 mm. in the morning. That's when I'm by far the most productive and the most focused. And, um, to create art, any kind of art, I think demands a tremendous amount of brain power. So, um, it's, it, it's, it's good to, um, what do you call it? Um, wander mm. artists have used drugs for as long as time has existed maybe to exactly do that but there's a difference between when you wander and then when you create and when you your mind wander then you can get the inspiration that then goes into the creation mm-hmm. but the actual creation demands a tremendous kind of structure and focus
1: yeah And I think that's where a lot of artists uh, actually have problems because you're used to the romantic image of an artist as the wild, the, 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 you know, the drinker, the drugger, the staying out late uh, party person. But you don't get used to the person who, or you don't think of the picture of the guy who gets up at 6 a.m. A lot of writers, for example, they get up at 5 a.m. and write until noon. Exactly. And that's it. That's their only time during the day to write. But I think there's a lot of confusion regarding this. And I think a lot of
0: the confusion is also related to that art attracts a lot of people who are basically very lazy (laughs) trying to find a kind of job that's going to make it possible for them to work very little. True story. Um, And any kind of artist who creates anything of value is a very, very Mm hardworking individual.
1: It's something I see a lot on this show just from interviewing people uh, again and again and again, people just say well you know I just uh, I, I paint three times as many pictures as other people and then only show a third of them you know or whatever they it's an incredible amount of work and it's an incredible amount of work that you never really know if it's going to get where you want it to go you know you're not sure you're ever going to finish necessarily right and
0: it's also... You got to love the work and the kind of recognition you get no matter how successful you are is really not why any hardworking, serious artist is doing what they do because anyhow, 95% of your time is spent
1: doing the work. So you got to love the work. I think that's the hard part. I think that's why a lot of people stop because, I mean, on the flip side, it's totally true that if you don't have any sort of engagement with the world, most people will have a really hard time continuing to do what they do. You know, you want some sort of validation or some sort of, uh, you know, interfacing with the world in order to keep going. At least I do. You know, I have a really hard time just making stuff for the sake of making it. And I don't know why, if it's, if it's ego or if it's just some sort of base desire to, to, to engage in dialogue or what it is, but I get extra energy by exhibiting work or by sharing with people, even just talking to it, inviting people over and talking about it gives me a love energy. I, I love talking about my
0: work. I love, I love um, traveling. I love to some extent meeting people, but it, it, <laughs> does also get more boring with time to meet new people but it's um you know it's also something that kind of comes with the territory because being any kind of artist you are not some of your work is or a big part of your work is meeting people it's networking it's building the foundation that can bring your art to other people mm-hmm in my case as a filmmaker is also financing what I do. And I spent insane amounts of hours qualifying my work to get financing so that I can actually create. And it's not something that I uh, value. It's not something that I uh, enjoy, but it's just a reality. That's it's not as word. much
1: people, though. That's more just the way it works, the funding system and the way...
0: No, but but it's connected because the way you fund a film is you go from festival to festival. They have these um, funding seminars. Uh, they call them markets, where you meet with a ton of different people who represent TV stations. They're commissioning editors. Uh, so you meet with BBC, you meet with HBO, you meet with whoever could potentially put money into what you do, and that's how you finance it. And part of making my art better is to create a better foundation in terms of network and financing. It's not just financing, it's also the same people who's going to help bring your work to an audience after. And that is, or a big part of that is meeting people. And a big part of that is knowing the right people and having the right kind of network. And let's just be honest about it. it it's kind of the same in any art. Um, you want to know the right curator who can put your stuff up at, at MoMA.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's a reality of being a, a painter, for example.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's everywhere. And it's, I think, also increasingly the case because the world gets more and more complex we live in a more and more globalized world. So the thing I do is the films I do, they're not just for a Danish audience. They're equally for an audience in other parts of the world. So I have to be able to navigate with a huge
1: field of um, people. It sounds intense. I mean, it's totally true what you're saying, and especially the part about it getting more complex makes me think of the fact that there are so many more filmmakers and photographers and so many more channels of promoting and pushing content out into the world. So that makes it, you know, it's like Hollywood in the 50s. Maybe, you know, there's less access. There was less access to the, the people who had the money and the control over networks and channels Uh, and so it was once you were in it was easier to get attention but now there's so much access and there's so many people you know whether it's just someone on Twitter trying to get the attention of a famous curator or you know filmmaker or whatever
0: well being a documentary filmmaker um, more and more seems to me to be a little bit like uh, building up a name for a band you travel extensively give concerts everywhere because that's the way that you build up your band. And the part of making a film is only one part of bringing my work to an audience. Um, I used to think that if I made a great film, then the rest would happen on its own. (laughs) And it's just not the case. Mm -hmm. Ideally, whenever I make a film, I should travel for two years and just push it, push it, push it at Wherever festival it gets into, I should go there because every festival is also a gateway to other festivals, new kinds of audiences. And I mean, for me, it's it's practically impossible. I have two kids. I live a boring middle class life in Copenhagen, and I actually value having... Spending time with my kids and getting up in the morning at <laughs> oh, eight no. and taking them to school <laughs> and doing the work. That's,
1: in the end of the day, that's that's where the true love is. Well, don't you think at a certain point, if, you, if you're lucky, you can get to a point where that system sustains itself. You get enough of a name that you don't have to be out there shaking hands, but you really have to reach the top 5%. Well, I don't
0: think it's the top 5%. It's maybe the top five people. Mm-hmm. um and and what gets you there it's um I, I, I I'm basically at a place right now where uh I've just decided not to care because I'm in a and I, I I'm able not to care. I'm luckily able to finance the films that I want to make and I have a full slate of work in front of me. So um I've just decided it's actually a decision I've made this year. It's like I don't even want to be stressed about it because I cannot play that game of traveling around the world. I do not want to play it. And I have a ton of respect for people who do it. But um in the end of the day, it's about what makes me happy. It makes me happy to do the work. And all the other stuff is just noise. You made it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, mean, I didn't if you made the, that decision or whatever, what, what does that mean what does that really mean
1: um, well it's chasing a goal right whatever that goal may be which is also a changing thing well for me
0: the rate of success is one thing and one thing only um, it's whether I'm able to get up in the morning and do the work and create and make the kind of films that I would like to make Mm. and the kind of creative work that fulfills me. At whatever um, level of success when it comes out that is, is um, beyond my control. But um, if I can have that kind of life, then I'm, I'm basically where I need to be. And the rest is just leave it up to um destiny to uh, to uh, to to decide that yeah. uh, i mean I'm, I'm quite envious of a writer i'm quite envious of um of painters because to some extent they can get up and do the work regardless of anything around them um it's not entirely true we still need to put bread on the table but um but you know you're 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 working much more on your own where, where film to, for me to make a film, I need at least a million dollars for a one documentary. Yeah. So, um,
1: it's a lot more money than oil paints and canvases. Exactly. So, but I mean, when you, I mean, obviously you've worked up to, to this position you're in now through many years. Um, and you started out as an anthropologist, right? Or you studied anthropology?
0: I studied anthropology. I never um, intended to become an anthropologist.
1: Did you intend to be a filmmaker?
0: Yeah, uh, I I, uh, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I did not want to make coffee for other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So uh, instead of uh, working my way up in um, you know, production houses, which kind of seemed like the um, most obvious way, I um, I enrolled in university and. We live in a country where when you're a student, you actually get money from the state because you study. So uh, I was working on a film project and I needed to edit it for like eight months. And to do that, I kind of needed to uh, survive. So I decided, okay, I'll enroll in university and I'll do the classes while I uh, get the student support so I can make the film. Genius. <laughs> and, um, and I looked through the list of courses over the summer. I was like, ah, oh, anthropology, that, that sounds interesting. And I enrolled and made the film, but I actually also fell in love with anthropology. And I ended up studying a bit more than three years. So I never got a master. I got a bachelor's degree. Mm. But um, but it really brought me to become also the kind of filmmaker that I am today.
1: Well, you went on to do visual anthrop- anthropology specifically, which is very much related. Yeah. Or can be. I it, it, it was it's it was more the
0: way that as I was studying anthropology the um, twin towers fell down. I just started studying that year, and as the towers went down, the world decided to invade Afghanistan. And my department of anthropology is the department in the entire world which has studied Afghan culture most intensely.
1: Is that here in Copenhagen? That's Copenhagen? in Aarhus,
0: the second okay, okay. biggest city in Denmark, and it's a huge collection of. Um, cultural um, artifacts from Afghanistan. There's a huge knowledge that's been built up in that department. And a lot of people who had studied and worked at that department were then sent to Afghanistan to work for NGOs Mm. in the UN Mm -hmm. because they had that expert knowledge. So uh, I, together with some other anthropologists, young students thought there's this thing happening in this country and we have this amazing access Let's go there. And they wanted to do field work. I I wanted to do a film because that's basically what I was interested in making. And so that brought me to Afghanistan about a year after the invasion or in the summer that followed. And what I wanted to do was to find a kind of story that could be a counter narrative to everything that we were seeing at the media at the time which was a bombed out kabul it was women in burqas and it was mullahs with long beards and basically the the cliche of and and you know the the scary image of this place uh which confirms any kind of um feeling inside people that um afghans are very very far away from us as people and I was fed up with that kind of media narrative. So I um, wanted to see what other narratives were there. And what's interesting, and that happens in any kind of conflict zone, is that the photographer, the journalist photographer who goes there, will point the camera in the direction of the most bombed out building. So the kind of images you see will always be the most dramatic images of a much more complex reality. And as I arrived in Kabul, it was this very, very interesting, vibrant city where there were areas that were completely bombed out for sure. But there were also areas where you had mansions from the seventies, modernist mansions that used to be inhabited by the Taliban. And now foreign NGOs were taking them over. And I went to a pool party uh, with hot Girls from uh, around the world who are working as NGOs in Kabul. I went to a pool party and and in the middle of Kabul. And I walked down the street and there were Bollywood posters everywhere. Nobody were just making images of this reality. All right. And so I thought that was interesting and and this meeting between such opposites. Mm-hmm. So. Some other thing that – another thing that I saw when I was walking was huge posters painted, beautifully hand-painted posters, two by three meters of either Arnold Schwarzenegger in trunks or Ronnie Coleman, who was at that time the world champion of bodybuilding. Everywhere around the town, you saw these weird posters. And there would be a burka walking uh, underneath this poster. And I was like, that image was uh, – wild. So I went in, I realized that bodybuilding was, had been popular for years, was exploding at the time in popularity and was more or less the most popular sport in the country. Really? And for me, it was like, wow, that's a story that I never heard. That is completely contrary to anything we expect to see.
1: But did you go there with no idea what you were going to do or find? You just went there with an open heart and mind? Yeah. And it was your first time there?
0: Yeah. And then I, I started traveling there, came back a few times, followed a group of bodybuilders mm-hmm. and made my first film, Afghan Muscles, mm-hmm. which also became like my entry into the filmmaking world.
1: So who, who helped you into that process? You had the dream of becoming a filmmaker. You were studying anthropology, but it sounds like you had no practical knowledge of making a film, how to edit, how to shoot uh, whatever other thousands of things go into producing a film when you make it yourself. Totally. I had
0: absolutely no experience I had some, I hadn't I had made some work before I had been to what's called the European film college, which is like a one year program. So I, I, uh, okay. I done some work, but, um, but not any work that I would today call show to anybody. Mm-hmm. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No way. We all have, that. um, but yeah, but, but that, kind of amateurs energy was, I think the, 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 big, big quality. And it comes through in the film. Um, I basically agree with Werner Herzog when he says that the worst thing people can do if they want to be a filmmaker is to go to film school. The biggest thing I regret is to have gone to film school.
1: The same argument could be made about art school too. Um, and, and, I came out with Afghan
0: muscles the same year that I started a four year film school, the national Danish film school.
1: So I was accepted as, as a director there based off of Afghan muscles or what? Uh,
0: and some other work I've made a little short film fiction to apply for the, Mm -hmm.
1: um,
0: for the school. But, um, I learned to make film doing Afghan muscles. What? what I learned in film school was how other people thought I should make films mm-hmm. or thought films should be made. And I think it's hugely important to understand art, to understand art history, film history. All of that is hugely important. But, um, I think that the kind of way we approach schools when it comes to something like filmmaking it's just wrong. Even today, I don't learn how to make films. I don't get inspired to make my films by looking at other people's films. I get inspired by going out into life. I get inspired by looking at art paintings photography literature so many different things but not other films because hmm. what could i learn by looking at other people's films it would be to make films that are um, replicas
1: of theirs and there's no technical uh angles or anything which you can uh, you can glean by watching a good film
0: well, let, let me um, qualify my argument, but it's, of course, I look at other films and in the process of making a film, yes, I do look at how did this film, this film, this film deal with this kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. So you have a certain scene and you want to solve it in a, in a creative way. You look at how other people did it and then you find your way. Sure, of course, you steal and you rob. Um, but... To find the heart of a film, to find the kind of core that makes a film special, that runs through a film, is not something you find by looking at other films. I
1: agree. So, technically, sure. And that you can't teach either. Yeah. But did you finish school then? Yeah, I finished school. Did you just um, hate it for four years or what?
0: (laughs) No, I liked it and people were nice and...
1: People were nice. Sounds like the worst insult there could be. It is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you did it. It's 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 a question of. For me, I was 29 when I got out of film school, which means that I spent 24 years of my life in school. Was that worth it? What did I get in those four years that I could not have gotten by traveling?
1: The world making new films you got the rubber stamp that says i'm officially stamped, graduated but that's not
0: even worth anything in filmmaking
1: really nothing no oh, you make me feel so much better i'm an art school dropout <laughs> but it's it, it's it's
0: the rubber stamp that you talk about is only something that matters to people who did not get into a school because they imagine that the kind of
1: struggles they have are connected with the rubber stamp that they're missing true story but you gotta admit Denmark's very educationally oriented it's all about that track going through the track and then popping out the other end and then you can do whatever you want basically but as a filmmaker
0: you are the work that you've done yes you can go to film school you can make a good piece of work but um and that can help you make a new work Hmm. um but to imagine that film school is more than that is is just false. You have a ton of filmmakers in Denmark who never went to film school. And I think oftentimes the most interesting filmmakers are the ones who didn't go to film school. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they come in with a different kind of experience. They bring something new. Um, they may
1: be more motivated, too.
0: And they might be more motivated and... And, I mean, this is especially the case in in documentary filmmaking. People come from all walks of life and become documentary filmmakers. And, And it's something you can actually do because you can take a camera, you can go out, you can find a fantastic story, you can edit it. And once you've made that film, and maybe along the way, you'll need some people's help to bring it to the level where it can become, can be, um, and once you have that piece of work, that's your entry point to make another one. You can take around the world, you you are a full fledged filmmaker just by doing that.
1: So what were you after Afghan Muscles?
0: I was a full fledged filmmaker. I should have gone out and made another film. I am. Um, I mean in, in I do treasure and value certain things about my time in film school. So I don't wanna sound Uh, Ungrateful. You got
1: your prison buddies. You got your. But but,
0: uh, uh, I am a little bit ungrateful because I um, I don't think that those four years were well spent.
1: Hmm. So you did Afghan muscles, then you went to school, and then that was the moment where it was like, okay, now what? I imagine you know, you graduate, or is it more like, fuck, I got to get going now? When
0: Afghan muscles came out. It was between my first and second year in film school. It traveled many places. It won the American Film Institute Grand Prix. Um, Did really well. That energy could have brought me into a new film. And I think that that kind of tide would have taken me in a positive way into a more natural way of becoming a filmmaker Mm. rather than going to film school and learning how to be a filmmaker. You learn through your work. Doing the work is what makes you a filmmaker. And I mean, film school went well. I did my graduation film. It actually won as the best graduation film in the world among 99 other film schools competing.
1: Which film was that?
0: It's called Copenhagen. Okay. So it's a 30 minute short film. So, I mean, it did really well. Um, But um, I still came out of film school confused in many ways.
1: Do you think that's just because you felt like you were displaced? I mean, you should have been making a movie instead of going to school, and that felt unnatural? Or what were you confused about?
0: I thought I would go to film school and figure out who I was as an artist. And it didn't help me to achieve that. Whether I just had a bad experience in film school, others have probably experienced the opposite. But this was my experience. Mm. And it meant that I came out of film school more confused than when I got in. And I think that that's basically the end of that. Um, I also learned a, a ton of stuff. So that's, uh,
1: that's how it is. But what did you do then when you, uh, when you graduated, did you decide I got to make a movie, I got to figure this out? Or were you discouraged or what, what happened immediately afterwards?
0: I am um, in the end of film school, I was offered to do a film in Columbia. It was, at that time, fully financed. So I said yes, because it was an interesting topic.
1: Was that through a network thing? Or um, was that uh, an offer that came out of the blue, or what? It was network, okay. I guess.
0: Um, and, well, I was basically developing another project in China, because I thought that when I got out of film school, I wanted to have like a, a film ready. And then as i was developing that with a production company that production company was making the other one and they needed a director on it and they asked me so the last two months of film school i kind of dropped out and i went to colombia and i shot the film and it came out six months later wow that's fast was that bogota that was bogota yeah and um that kind of threw me into um, documentary filmmaking again after studying
1: fiction for four years. Oh, you thought maybe you were going to make fiction movies? Well, I thought I wanted to do both, and uh-huh. I still do. When you when you first got interested in film, was it documentary or fiction or both, or you didn't know? Or
0: when I first got into film, I think like any other, I thought I should make fiction. Okay, because that was the picture of a film director that I had. You were
1: going to be Francis Ford Coppola or something. Something like that, <laughs>
0: um, and and then um, by accident I um,
1: started doing documentary. Ah. Um, fell in love with that. It's very anthropology based. I mean, that would be a natural right. step from anthropology. Um, but there's never been a like a big game
0: plan, mm. so to speak. Mm. I am. Um, I really treasure filmmakers who move between fiction and documentary. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that these things are even separated is false. And I think that these filmmakers who do both become better at both. So um, that's how I look at it. And my heroes are generally people like that. Um, And I'm now developing two fiction projects. The, The thing that's been for me with fiction happening since I six years ago, got out of film school was that I've been so busy making documentaries that, um, and raising a family that, that to find that extra time to develop a, f- a fiction film has, uh, been difficult to find. Mm-hmm. So, um, so right now I'm, I'm trying to really allocate the time for that.
1: So you went to Columbia, you made Bogota. Right. And I can only assume that at some point there you met Antanas Mokus or somebody connected to Antanas Mokus. Or
0: yeah, the film was part of a series about cities, mega cities, mm-hmm. the challenges they face, mm-hmm. and possible solutions. So the reason I was asked to do Bogota was because it had won big prizes for being like a model for change. And it was widely known that there were two mayors who had played a significant role in that. Antanas Mokos being one and the other Enrique Peñalosa. So um, the film was supposed to be about Antanas Mokus and his work as mayor. But right before I went, I... Um, took part in um, a masterclass in Copenhagen with the other mayor, Enrique Penelosa, who by accident was visiting Copenhagen then. And I became very fascinated with his work in infrastructure and how he built bikeways and sidewalks and basically made a more democratic city by changing the infrastructure. And first of all, I thought that... That was another important part of the story that should be told if we were to tell the story about how Bogota became a model city. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I just, as part of my research, when I came to Bogota, then I um, went with my producer around to meet people, met Antanas Mokos, and I met the other mayor, Enrique Penalosa. And as we walked into his office, my producer said, so, by the way, we're we making this film about Antanas Mokos and about how he um, changed Bogota. And Enrique Penelosa got just got out of out of his chair and started on a rant about how it was not Antanas Mokos. It was him who uh. made the difference. <laughs> and that rant went on for at least two and a half hours Holy nonstop. Shit. And I mean, he's a very intense guy. And... Me sitting there, I, number one, already thought that he was an important part of the story. And number two, I thought, great, I have my film. Because these two guys clearly don't like each other. They're clearly somewhat like-minded in terms of values, in terms of what they've actually given to the city, just in different ways. And at the same time, they just cannot stand each other. Right, they're very ambitious and too ambitious people often. Right. Um, So it became this story about how these two were competing and in the end of the day, changing the city together, but weren't able to give each other the credit for it.
1: Right. But the movie didn't end up turning out to be about that, really, unless we're all of a sudden talking about human scale.
0: No, Bogota Chains is about
1: these two mayors and what they did and how they complimented each other. Oh, right. Of course. I'm getting confused because then you followed up and made the next movie about Antanas. Right. What came out of that film was that I became very fascinated with the philosophy
0: of how to do politics that mm-hmm. Antanas Mogos represent mm-hmm. and his way of thinking, his personality. And I really felt like that deserved a bigger story. Mm-hmm. And by accident as we were wrapping up this film bogota change um he uh, became a presidential candidate and became a head of like this wave of change you could call it the political spring in mm-hmm. colombia mm-hmm. it was like revolutionary times and and Mugus was the figurehead the symbol and the philosopher behind it so um i took my camera and i went there and i decided to follow up and and use the opportunity to Mega story that would be more about him and less about urban change in Bogota, which the first film had as its
1: main topic. So basically, you were lucky enough to stumble on an incredible moment, totally in, in the political history of a country, in the personal uh, journey of a man, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Completely, and it was um,
0: it was something that when we shot Bogota Change, the first film nobody thought that he would be relevant in politics in, um, in, in at least the short term. Mm. And he was widely considered to be someone sort of on the fringes. Um, right, the crackpot. Uh, uh, I mean, there, this uh, kind of weird-looking um, intellectual who says really important stuff that people listen to, but who's not expected to play an important part in politics
1: he has such an incredible way of talking yeah i mean from watching your movie just the way he can formulate ideas and thoughts was super impressive you know he kept saying things where i was like oh that's what i think but he just said it a hundred times better (laughs) you know he's so good at that sort of discourse and uh, i'll never forget there's a scene in the movie where a journalist asks some sort of snotty question and he shuts him down in the most nonviolent yet um, forceful, or at least a, you know, solid way. It's amazing just watching the way he can deal with that sort of thing, right? Which may be also why he did end up having some success, you know, or at least well, become a player. There is no other politician like him in the
0: world, in my view, mm-hmm. and the way that he uses. Words and symbols or the way that he challenges the way we use words and the kind of symbols that we have with new words and symbols that travel into the vocabulary and become something that shape reality mm-hmm. is extraordinary. And it's like an artist, really. I mean, he, he's like an artist in politics in the way that he does that. You can really see how artist runs through his um, spine. His mother is a very, very uh, skilled uh, sculptor. Mm -hmm. So he grew up in a world of art, and that's something that's informed his way of approaching politics in connection with his background as a philosopher. Mm -hmm. And just to give an example, there is... um, Phrases from that election that we see in the beginning of Life is Sacred, my second film about him, such as "no todo vale." Not everything is allowed. That today is widely spoken in Colombia and used when ever someone goes beyond the ethical boundaries of how we're supposed to act. Mm-hmm. Then other people will say "no todo vale." It's not valid. And oh, everything is not allowed. Mm. Come on. Everything is not allowed. But this is a country where generally not everything, but too many things are allowed. And you see it in politics. You see it in the way that corruption is rampant. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is the slogan, uh, I came because I wanted, not because you paid me. It was chanted all over Colombia. And... That has also travelled into the way that people talk, the way politicians talk in a country where politics is usually a question of who pays who. Mm-hmm. So you vote, who um, you vote, vote for whoever gives you um, a bit of money. Um, and there's so many things where I mean, it's, he manages to take something that could be very complex and just synthesise it in a little phrase and a word that, um, everybody understands
1: and it's so relevant. It's not dumbed down. It's just presented super streamlined, accessible, intelligent.
0: Yeah. Um, and he's could be accused of being a populist, um, doing that, but, but then what is a populist, uh, isn't it exactly the task of a politician? To bring people together around ideas Mm -hmm. that can help us build our societies. Right.
1: That's the difference between a populist, I'd say. I'd say Trump is a populist because he brings people together around ideas which go nowhere, which are just rhetoric. You know, whatever political meaning you might have, there seems to be no substance to what he says. It's just populist rhetoric in order to incite certain feelings. Whereas Mokus was much more about. Rhetoric, which got to the heart of of the matter, yeah, you know, and had some sort of platform to stand on, and and Colombians recognize that they know that.
0: So um, whenever there is something said by Antanas or a simple or a foolish act, he uses humor a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Colombians know that the buffoonery is built on a very solid foundation and a very clear analysis of what are the essential problems in Colombia? How do we deal with them? Mm -hmm. And his analysis of Colombian society is primarily that illegality penetrates every part of society. And to fight that illegality cannot just be the task of the police. It has to be the task of, or it has to be about changing the culture because it's the culture that allows it as well. And what that basically means is if you look at, he has sort of a divided, what controls our behavior into free systems. There's the law, which is enacted by the police and so on, the military. And then there is the social, which is I will not steal because you will not like me if I steal. There's the ethical. I will not steal because I will not like myself. And we're to a great extent controlled by the social and by the ethical. And if you can change that, if you can start tweaking those elements as well, then um, you can achieve a lot. And that's everything that he's ever done has been playing. Trying to find a way to do politics that plays on all three parameters, rather than just
1: changing the law and then thinking that things will be fine. And that changes. I mean, that's you never hear that in politics, you know. Or if you do, it's empty. And that's uh, that's. I think that's what was so refreshing about it. Uh, you know, I, I I was I saw the opening of that movie and I thought it was really powerful. And uh, the audience did too. You know, just being in that room, watching the way people reacted, he was obviously there. The uh, young woman who's in the movie—I forget her name—Catherine. Catherine is was there, and she was, you know, kind of emotionally reliving her experience through the movie. It was really—I was sitting right in front of her uh, or right behind her, and she was, you know, having a really hard time watching the movie because she was reliving it, and uh, it it just made for such an intense experience being present during that showing it was uh, it was super interesting and very touching yeah it was a special
0: night mm. um, and in in the case of Antanas it's he's sick with Alzheimer's yeah no sorry <laughs> no Alzheimer's. it's the one what's it Parkinson's called? Parkinson's yeah I always mistake the two um, Parkinson's so in in the film you also see the progressive development that that disease has And, um, in a way, and I mean, he said that to me, this, this is his legacy Mm -hmm. or part of his legacy. And, um, that night showing the film to him, he'd seen it once before, but for the first time having him seeing it with an audience and see his work, which he has great doubts about the relevance of. Um, to see that being shared with other people in a way where complete strangers who have no knowledge of Colombia get him.
1: Here we are in Denmark watching a movie about Colombian politics. Yeah. And suddenly it's something,
0: a movie, that I think is the special thing about that movie, is what we normally see from Colombia is drugs and violence. Here's something that is just absolutely unique. And can inspire people everywhere. Mm. And it is. And it has. Um, And that's kind of magic. Mm. Were you happy with the movie? Um, The movie was a huge struggle to make. It was very difficult to uh, get it done. It was very difficult to finance it. And... It meant that we spent five years doing it, which was in the end a huge gift to the film, that we couldn't finish it um, because political events in Colombia kind of kept evolving and I kept following and we implemented it into the film. So in the end we ended up having this sort of five-year portrait of his time in Colombian politics. And he played a very decisive role in an election, for example, where the peace process was at stake and he came in and and kind of helped save the peace process, which now I think this year will bring the peace negotiation. Um, I mean, the FARC and the government will sign a peace deal, which will, Solve a conflict that's been ongoing since 1958. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, was kind of a life and accidents and coincidences all played a part in a film that at times was very, very difficult to make, but at the end it made for the better film. And I am, um, it's, it's, I think among the two films that I've made that I, I have the greatest affection for. Mm. So, um, I am, I am very proud of that film.
1: Where does the human scale fit in? We, uh, we, we kind of skipped over that and it seems like, so that must've come out while you were working or shooting on the, on life is sacred. Totally. Uh, I, I um,
0: I shot the first parts of life is sacred in 2009 and 10 Mm -hmm. and Right after that, I was asked if I wanted to do a film about the Gale office, uh, an architectural office in Copenhagen, which is the most influential urban planning office in the world,
1: I'd say. So you were, again, invited to do
0: this film? I was asked, or there was like an open call where several filmmakers were asked to give their take on the film. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, it was a foundation in Denmark that wanted um, the film made about the work, and um, and then I uh, was asked to do the film, and spent like nine months I think working on it. So we kind of put the other project on hold while I did that film, and that's relatively fast again—nine months. Yeah, but it was part of the plan was that it had to be ready for. The Venice Biennale. Ah. Uh-huh. So um, that was in late August. So we started work in like December, I think. Jesus, Jesus Christ. And uh, the film takes place in, I think, seven or eight different places around the world. Yeah. China, Bangladesh, It's a lot US. of flying around. So um, there's a lot of traveling involved. And... It's, it's also a film that I, um, I really, really love and I'm, I feel very proud of it. It was and, and still is like very, very successful um, and has really made a huge impact in certain places. Just a few months ago, I was called up from Guatemala City where the wealthiest family in Guatemala saw this, saw this film and decided that they were going to put multi-million dollars into remaking Guatemala City. According to these principles that the film lays out, and it's not the only place that this has happened. so to see a film have that kind of impact is extraordinary. that is not nothing um, and the film has you know been in cinemas in 20 plus countries and mm-hmm. for a documentary has done extremely well um, but but ironically it's it's a film that was actually made rather fast
1: yeah, although not cheaply. Right. Money helps things move along, of course. But then, you know, then you made Life is Sacred, which is a very, very different film. Although, it does seem to me, with my knowledge of your work, that it is very much about people. And in a way, it's very much about, it's kind of a, your your idea is very your general work is very hopeful about humans and about the future and about uh, progress. And uh, you don't, you don't shy away from all the difficulties we face, but it seems to me like the, um, the message at the end is, is, uh, is positive is, is uplifting. Do you ever think about your work in the larger picture in the, um, as, as an oeuvre to name a terrible word?
0: Yeah, very much so. I am I'm generally genuinely interested in people, uh not just one to one, but how societies are constructed and how we as people play a part in that. I think that that's a common thread that runs through everything that I've done and you can say that that's in a way a sort of anthropological kind of eye that's present everywhere. At the same time, I'm a strong believer that the way a film is told is, or should be, um, shaped by what the story is. And, and, What I mean by that is that whenever I make a film, I try to clean out the plate and say, okay, I have this kind of story in front of me. What's the right kind of language to tell this story? And it's in a way saying that the story or the people and what I find interesting there is is more important than my artistic ego coming in and saying, this is my language. That's how I make a film. I am. Um, I really love the process of engaging with a certain story, seeing it evolve in front of me and f- through that, finding the right kind of language for that type of story. And, I'm also a strong believer in that that process can bring about a new kind of language. And every film that I've made is also sort of investigating new languages in film. Mm-hmm. So um, you'll see that my stories are actually f- quite different from each other in style. And that comes from the fact that the process of making it is really what defines the style. And what's interesting me is the process of bringing something to fruition.
1: Well, that sounds like it'd be the hard part. You know, because again, anybody can go out theoretically and shoot, oh, let's just say 800 hours of footage. The hard part is making that into a movie. Right. It's terribly hard. Um, Do you have any advice for anybody who's interested in making a documentary? <laughs> or a movie, I guess I should say. Um,
0: I, mean, I, I don't go to film I, I, school. <laughs> I always, uh, I think approach topics that are not very film friendly. Um, I think I like that challenge and I like to put a film language onto something that may not have had one before. um, So there's a lot of topics that I shy away from because I find them in a way too easy. Like what? Um, Let's say you can make a film about um, a boxing match. It's a very natural story. There are winners, there are losers, there are things at stake. Um, And it's very filmic. what's not typically filmic is things that happen inside people's head things that are idea-based and and those are the things that interest me so then the challenge is to find let's say in the case of colombia antanas Mocos, you know it's it's ideas it's thoughts it's philosophy how can i find a film language where we embody that so that you and me can experience it in the case of the human scale it's Theories, ideas about how we make our cities and in a way through that, how have we constructed the societies we live in today? Mm. That's what the film is about. How can I, as a filmmaker, embody that into a visual, emotional experience? That's the task and it demands a huge amount of listening because... I usually and anybody will usually come in with a preset idea, set of ideas about how to do something. Mm -hmm. And it's only when that's challenged by, let's say the expert knowledge of someone who truly knows something about how we make cities. And when I, as a filmmaker, I have the humbleness to actually listen to that and then challenged my artistic ideas in that meeting. It doesn't mean that I'm just a mouthpiece for that person. It means that how can I in a deep way understand what's in that person's mind, what that person's under what that person understands when he or she sees the world. Because let's say in the case again of, of an urban planner architect who spent years and years dealing with this topic. They have everything in their head. So I have to really cut to the core of why that's important, why that matters to them. And then I have to find a visual language and um, like a language in words and music and sound that can make this something that you and me can experience in a powerful way. That process, whether it's a writer, I've made a film about, uh, or not really a writer, but um, um, a guy who wants to be a writer and tries to write a book. I've made a film about that. I've made a film about urban planning. I've made a film about uh, political philosophy. And it's, it's always the same kind of process you could say that I go through. The result can look very different, but I think you also find that there's like an emotional core that, that is kind of present everywhere or set of values that travels through these things. Um,
1: and that's, that's how I work. You may have just described uh, how to make a documentary film the best way I've ever heard it. That was the most uh, kind of clearly and to the point idea about how to work with ideas and then translate them. Uh, Do you want to talk about future projects? What's coming up? Or is that uh, in the bag? Sure. Can you kind of quickly tell us about uh, what's coming up? What you're working on now? I've been for the
0: last bit more than a year working on a film with, a group of Syrians, primarily a woman, former radio host from Damascus, who have filmed and lived through the last five years of conflict, starting out with revolution, political change, hope for a more fair society, and then things have escalated to the into the tragedy that we see today. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a massive amount of footage. You mentioned like sitting with 800 hours and, and that's basically the case here. It's, it's less than 800, but maybe three or 400 hours of randomly filmed footage, which has an emotional power to it because it's real and it's, it's not filmed with a certain intention. She was just there and she was present as a human being and engages with people. And she has a very um, nice way of um, getting people to talk. So you really meet a lot of people in this film who share with you certain moments of, of the war. Mm-hmm. It's a very unique, powerful material, and a very um, powerful, tragic story. They start out being six friends in Damascus. Of those six friends, three are dead today. One was in prison two years, escaped recently, and the remaining two are today refugees living outside Syria. So in the film, we see their journey from the early days of kind of naive hope and not just poli- hope for political change but it's also a revolution on a personal level experiencing freedom one of them froze off her hijab for the first time they experience freedom in a lot of different ways because that's the time they live in and we see that happening and then things just escalates into darkness and so so i've been sitting with that for um, about a year First, writing it based on these 300 hours, and I'm making it in collaboration with Obi, the main character, and and then um, building up the story based on these 300 hours of footage in a way where it becomes a piece of art that makes me travel into her mind in a way, taking the journey that she's taking taken. For five years that's brought her into a very, very difficult place. She's, uh, today traumatized by war and by the loss of these people. And, and, and it's an ongoing thing. It's part of the, making this film has been dealing with all the trauma that she's in. And a few months ago, I was, um, sitting with her and it was middle, it was between Christmas and new years. and, her hometown, which we see in the film, was at that time being emptied out after three months, three years under siege, six months blocked off for any kind of food. People were dying of hunger. It was as bad as the ghetto in Warsaw in the Second World War, and the weird thing is that internet was working. I could sit together with her. And Skype stream live images of friends and family of hers that are dying of hunger at this very moment. And so making this film has been challenging on so many levels personally, building her up as a human being to give her the strength to make this film together with me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, understanding her mind enough so that I can make the story in a way so that the audience is brought to the point that she is at. Because the the true power of this film, I think is that at the end of the film, we see people in boats crossing the Mediterranean. Who are these people? It's a crisis that we're dealing with today in Europe, globally, and we need to understand why these people are in these boats. Right, they didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, and and what brought that situation in Syria, because it's it's not something that we can not understand. It's something that we can truly understand if we go in, and I think this film can achieve
1: some of that. Sounds like... um a uh, nearly impossible task. I mean, I know you're the man for the job, but it sounds so, so hard. It's extremely challenging and emotionally
0: exhausting. Yeah. Um, kind of emotional exhaustion that I'm going through is um, little compared to what she's been going through. But, right. Um, Any
1: feelings you have of it being hard is also followed by guilty feelings of being like, "Oh, my life is so easy." Kind of. <laughs> um,
0: but, um, but again, it's it's that process of listening, which is applied here, and through that, making a journey that uh, brings the film to some into something that others can understand and be touched by. And it's funny because the word director in Danish is instructor. And I think a lot of Danish directors think that they should be instructors. And it's a huge misunderstanding. If you instruct someone, you tell them what to do. You never tell an actor what to do. You never tell a human being what to do. Or at least if you do, don't expect them to be generous with themselves. Directing is a much more beautiful word because basically, as a director, your task is to take all the energies that are in front of you. It's both an editor and it's a producer and it's, I mean, character, anything. And make sure that that streams into one flow, that more and more becomes this crystal clear expression we call a film. Mm. Um, The French word is réalisateur. You realize something. And that's the task that you have as a filmmaker. Your ego is not important. And if I have to bend down and bend over and do whatever I need to do in order to make this all these streams flow into one river, then that's what I have to do. It's the task because I'm not important.
1: Perfect. It's a perfect place to leave it. I could go on forever. I could go on for another hour, but uh, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Undergang Armchair. The intro and outro music was kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by RC. You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations with great people on our production house of a website, undergang.net. If you like this show, we would appreciate it if you'd take the time to leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. This show is produced in part with the kind support of the Danish Arts Council. Thanks for joining us.